0: Section 12 of The Spirit of American Literature This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jessica Louise The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy Thoreau When Thoreau died, Emerson wrote, the country knows not yet, or in the least part, how great a sun it has lost. In fifty years, the country, the world, has learned more of this great sun. Friends and editors have assembled one by one the eleven volumes of the Standard Edition, and the recent publication of his complete journal indicates that there are readers who regard the least of his notes as worthy of preservation. The growing cult of the open air the increasing host of amateur prodigals returning to nature, have given fresh vogue to his sketches of woods and waters. But for all that, the man is not yet fully understood. Lowell's unsympathetic essay, product of a mind from which poetry and youth had evaporated, and of a social outlook grown conventionally decorous, has carried inevitable authority. Like Macaulay's essay on Bacon and Jeffrey's blundering and miscomprehension of Wordsworth, it is an example of how one great reputation may for a period smother and distort another. Stevenson's popular essay, written in his half-dramatic attitude of athletic good cheer and arm-in-arm sympathy with a hooray-boy world, is based on a misconception of Thoreau's character and his message as a whole. It overemphasizes the gentle reservation with which Emerson tempers his praise. Emerson, in a few words, sets forth the rounded integrity of Thoreau's work and personality. In one place, he makes a comment upon his fellow philosophers' proneness to negation and opposition. The comment, in its place, is just to Thoreau and expresses Emerson's more inclusive amiability. Stevenson singles out from Emerson's total estimate the negative characteristic, and stiffens it into an antisocial asceticism which is not foreign to Thoreau's nature, but is by no means its dominant quality. That original minds stand above the comprehension of mediocre minds of their own period, and of later times, is a fact observable everywhere in the history of the human intellect, more than that some minds are not merely above the common herd they are in advance of the best culture of their day and must await the intelligence of later generations to give them full recognition emerson and holmes were as comprehensible to their generation as to ours whitman and thoreau were trailblazers they went before to survey regions where later comers find a broad highway Thoreau's vision shot beyond the horizon which bounded, and still bounds, the sight even of that part of the world which fancies itself liberal and emancipated. I am, says Thoreau, a poet, a mystic, and a transcendentalist. He was all that, and moreover he was an anarchist. He was the one anarchist of great literary power in a nation of slavish conformity to legalism, where obedience to statute and maintenance of order are assiduously inculcated as patriotic virtues by the social powers which profit from other people's docility. Walden and A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers have been accepted as classics. The essays on forest trees and wild apples were to be found in a school reader twenty-five years ago. But the ringing revolt of the essay on civil disobedience is still silenced under the thick respectability of our times. The ideas in it could not to-day be printed in the magazine, which was for years owned by the publishers of Thoreau's complete works. Boston Back Bay would shiver. It would not do, really, to utter aloud Thoreau's ideas in a society whose leading university, Thoreau's alma mater, has recently ruled, that the halls of the university shall not be open for persistent or systematic propaganda on contentious questions of contemporaneous social, economic, political, or religious interests. That is, let the university offer fifty courses in philosophy, history, and literature which is dead enough not to be dangerous to vested authority, but let it not take any part in philosophy, history, or literature which is in the making. The application of Thoreau's principles to the injustices of our present political and industrial life would be condemned as disloyally un-American in the community where he lived, and which is now owned, body and soul, factory and college by State Street. Thoreau's intellectual kinsmen are not there. For an adequate recognition of the value of Thoreau's challenge to authority, one turns to no living New Englander, but to that other solitary and indignant moralist, Tolstoy. On the right of the individual to withhold his sanction of word and deed from a government by any minority or majority which is engaged in dishonest practices and enforces brutal laws, the American and the Russian philosopher are mainly in accord. Each says to government, you may take me and break me because you are physically strong, but willing party to your legalized system of plunder and murder I will not be the government against which tolstoy rebelled is melodramatically barbarous so that liberal minds all over the world find themselves in sympathy with him it is easy to protest against tyranny on the other side of the planet thoreau's government which is so like the present government of the united states that the change of a word or two the insertion of modern instances makes his essay as pertinent as if written yesterday thoreau's government skulks behind the pacific mask of democracy It deforms children, kills men, and ruins women by common consent, and not by the Cossack forces of a picturesquely tyrannous czar. The prosperous and so-called cultivated classes who manage for us our industrial, educational, literary and religious affairs hold up horrified hands at Russia, but naturally have no quarrel with the system of government at home, which leaves them in peace and offers them a career of ease. Therefore, in the gallery of ideas through which admiring American youth is conducted, Thoreau's portrait of government is discreetly turned to the wall. His nature books, his poetic notes on the seasons, are recommended to an ever-growing number of readers. The flaming eloquence of his social philosophy, the significance, the conclusion of his experiment in individualism, is ignored. We praise Tolstoy, even in cultivated Boston, but we remain unacquainted with our own spiritual liberator. One difference between Tolstoy and Thoreau is vital—a difference in personal circumstances. Tolstoy was born a landed aristocrat. He struggled in vain to bring the conduct of his life into accord with his beliefs. He desired to be a workman, but could only dabble in manual toil. In spite of his attempt to renounce copyright, his world-famous fictions brought money to his family. Circumstances enmeshed him, and his titanic struggle to extricate himself entangled him more and more, and made him a tragic figure. His life came to an impotent conclusion. Only death, as in some Greek tragedy, could restore dignity and moral consistency. Thoreau, on the other hand, was born poor. He remained a bachelor, he earned his living by productive labor and thus he had the good fortune to be able to practice his philosophy. He was not directly, nor by any economic indirection, dependent for his bread on another man. Tolstoy, an agonized prisoner in a wealth which he thought polluted him, may well have envied the Yankee pencil-whittler and land surveyor, a jack-of-all-trades and master of several, who did his honest day's work beside the common laborers of the world. The leisure which he spent in the company of sages, poets, and prophets, whose peer he was, he earned with his hands. He was spared the humiliation of writing sermons on freedom, in time won at the expense of some other man's freedom. If I devote myself to other pursuits and contemplations, he says, I must first see, at least, that I do not pursue them sitting upon another man's shoulders. I must get off him first, that he may pursue his contemplations too. One other difference between Tolstoy and Thoreau is essential. It springs from that primary difference in their social stations. Tolstoy groaned beneath the agony of a suffering world. He took upon himself the sins of his class. His long cry of pain, which the work of his last twenty years hurls at the dull ears of humanity, is unrelieved except by a sad, half-rationalized Christianity, confessedly unconsoling. He tortured himself with an almost morbid sense of responsibility for evils remote from his private duties, evils which he could not help. Thoreau, on the contrary, enjoyed life. "'I came into this world,' he says, "'not chiefly to make this a good place to live in, but to live in it, be it good or bad.' When they put him in jail for refusing on principle to pay his poll tax he had nothing on which to impose a property tax. He did not make a martyr of himself, but with his mouth slightly awry wrote five dryly humorous pages about my prisons, in which legal contrivances are made to look not merely oppressive but ridiculous. He laughs at the jailer and official, his neighbors in their attitudes as policeman and soldier. A man of humor, one might think, would be ashamed to appear on a street in Thoreau's town in blue uniform with a star on his breast." lest Thoreau emerge suddenly from the woods and contemplate the insignia of authority with a faintly acid smile. Thoreau is not a theorist who argues himself into anarchism by the routes of bookish reasoning. The philosophy of anarchism was not in his lifetime so highly developed, codified, and rationalized as it is now, and it is doubtful if Thoreau would have had much patience with its elaborately systematic arguments in support of an unsystematic conduct of life. To speak practically, and as a citizen, he says, unlike those who call themselves no-government men, I ask for not at once no government, but at once a better government. He was no selfish opponent of the inconveniences of society. The state might have his money if it used it for useful, or at worst, harmless enterprises such as building roads. He was willing to conform with any peaceful nonsense or extravagance. One cannot be too much on his guard lest his action be biased by obstinacy or an undue regard for the opinions of men. He simply asked not to be made accessory to legalized crime. He had no disposition to reform the world, though he joined the abolitionists, like all decent New Englanders of all creeds and political principles. The government does not concern me much, and I shall bestow the fewest possible thoughts on it. That was a fair and a practical attitude for a free man in an agricultural nation like America sixty years ago, where he who had skill to work could get a living somehow. A complexly organized, industrial system has since grown up in America. All the good land is occupied, or at least fenced with titles, and today even so capable a man as Thoreau would find it difficult to support himself in decency with a half-day's work. Thoreau's views fitted his time and his community, Tolstoy, holding the same views fifty years later, was trying to hark back to conditions that the world of production had outlived even in Russia. What Thoreau, the maker of pencils, would say to a modern pencil factory where he, like other workmen, would have to apply for a job or make no pencils, we can only guess, Yankee-wise. We guess that he would have understood it shrewdly and inspected its machinery with the eye of a born mechanic and not have protested against it, as his epigon, Tolstoy, protested against the advance of modern industry. With the great changes that have come in the relations between a workman and his tools, some of Thoreau's single-handed individualism has grown obsolete. So far forth as it concerns those practices of government and habits of society which have not appreciably altered or improved, it remains a much-needed word of rebellion. How does it become a man to behave toward this American government today? I cannot for an instant recognize that political organization is my government, which is the slave's government also. For black slave, which he means substitute white slave, or child laborer, and the sentence stands vividly pertinent to the blessed year 1912. This people, he said, must cease to make war on Mexico, though it cost them their existence as a people substitute Philippines for Mexico, and the sentence is part of many an honest man's belief this morning. The standing army, says Thoreau, is only an arm of the standing government. The government itself, which is only the mode which the people have chosen to execute their will, is equally liable to be abused and perverted before the people can act through it. Witness the present Mexican War, the work of comparatively few individuals using the standing army as their tool. Was that written yesterday, when under pretense of preserving law and order on the Mexican frontier, the financial powers in control of these United States, investors in Mexican securities, sent an army of free-born American soldiers to the Rio Grande? The entire essay on civil disobedience should be read by us timorous moderns to re-nerve us in time of abuse. We have, it seems, lost the art of speaking so eloquently and courageously, But we can make the most of a man who spoke for us sixty years ago, and whose work it is respectable to quote, for he is an established New England classic." Thoreau was not concerned primarily with government, because he was so situated that he could turn his back on it and not suffer. In his time, an independent man could enjoy liberty of utterance and occupation. Thoreau asked to be let alone, and he was let alone. Non-interference between him and the government was mutual and friendly, except when the tax collector reached his official hand into the Concord Woods and seized that distinguished pole enumerated as H. D. Thoreau, Occupation, Surveyor. Thoreau's work is a long notebook of surveyors' jottings, a continuous journal, all autobiographic, some sections of which are assembled into essays. His first book, A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, consists of seven discursive essays on a multitude of subjects. There is rather more reflection upon literature and life in general than narrative of the week's experiences. This insurgent and original man who lives near the heart of nature, who, like Whitman, regards a woodchuck's hole as a cosmic fact, is a critic of literature, a reader of Elizabethan poets. In a later book, Cape Cod, he recites the sonorities of Homer on the Yankee Sands. In his first book he recites the beauties of nature reclining on the bosom of oriental religion and British poetry. On Saturday he paddles out on the river. The purling of the water, the echoes of civilization on the banks, are vividly realized. But by Sunday morning the little stream is flown into the vasty deeps of Hindu and Greek philosophy, and when the Sabbath evening comes we have added nothing to our knowledge of local geography, but have listened to one of the very best essays on books. The paragraphs on style form one of the most melodious of all discourses on the art of expression. Thoreau exemplifies the art he is explaining. Whoever enjoys the inconsistency of man may note that for ten pages, in the skillful cadences of a practiced scholar, Thoreau dwells on the merit of the brief word, the eloquence of unlettered men, the farmer's call to his team, and other primitive, manly modes of speech, He pays his warmest tribute, however, not to the style of the conquered farmer, but to Sir Walter Raleigh. Sir Walter Raleigh might well be studied, if only for the excellence of his style, for he is remarkable in the midst of so many masters. There is a natural emphasis in his style, like a man's tread, and a breathing space between the sentences, which the best of modern writing does not furnish. His chapters are like English parks or say rather like a western forest, where the larger growth keeps down the underwood, and one may ride on horseback through the openings. All the distinguished writers of that period possess a greater vigor and naturalness than the more modern, for it is allowed to slander our own time. And when we read a quotation from one of them in the midst of a modern author, we seem to have come suddenly upon a greener ground, a greater depth and strength of soil it is as if a green bough were laid across the page and we are refreshed as by the sight of fresh grass in midwinter or early spring you have constantly the warrant of life and experience in what you read the little that is said is eked out by the implication of the much that was done the word which is best said came nearest to not being spoken at all for it is cousin to a deed which the speaker could have better done Nay, almost it must have taken the place of a deed by some urgent necessity, even by some misfortune, so that the truest writer will be some captive knight after all. And perhaps the Fates had some such design, when having stored Raleigh so richly with the substance of life and experience, they made him a fast prisoner, and compelled him to make his words, his deeds, and transfer to his expression the emphasis and sincerity of his action beautiful, fluent, and suggestive. But meanwhile, what has become of our village anarchist, whom even the tax collector cannot make a captive knight, but who is paddling idly on a New England river for a week? On Tuesday, a fine description of daybreak from mountain an experience not of this week, but of another year. On Wednesday, a fine sermon on friendship, on thursday the story of Hannah dustin and her justifiably murderous exploit among the indians accompanied by a discourse on epic stories and history on friday the wind blew steadily downstream, so that we kept our sails set and lost not a moment of the forenoon by delays but from early morning until noon were continually dropping downward with our hands on the steering paddle which was thrust deep into the river or bending to the oar which indeed we rarely relinquished We felt each palpitation in the veins of our steed, and each impulse of the wings which drew us above. The current of our thoughts made as sudden bends as the river. And so he steers into a fine discussion of Ossian. He returns into the current, to glide past Tingsborough and Chelmsford, holding in one hand half a tart country apple pie. Thence back into a beautiful eddy of thought about poetry, and the week is ended a leisurely week covering ages of human thought. Footnote. Alcott said that this book was Virgil, White of Selborne, and Isaac Walton and Yankee settler all in one. This is intended as high praise and does express the varied wealth of the book, but Alcott could not turn a lofty intention into words without getting something wrong. There is about as much of Virgil in Thoreau as there is of Seneca. End footnote. Of this interesting book, full of exquisite reflections and of as deep wisdom as ever came out of the universe by way of Concord, the author sold two hundred copies. The rest he took back from the printer and stored in a garret, a transaction which he records with unresentful dry humor. His next book, the only other which he lived to see in print, is Walden, his masterpiece, a greater book than The Week, of the same tone and texture, but informed by a more explicit unifying philosophy of life. It records his actual experiment in individualism. It is alive with the reality of daily doings and is rounded to a higher reality, to one man's complete view of the life worth living and the destiny of the race. Emerson, paying his frugal way by lecturing and writing, makes many observations about society and solitude, the place of the individual in nature, but he lives among men, and does not know from experience the effect of abiding soul and self-dependent in the midst of an unpopulated wood. Thoreau, investigator and surveyor, tries solitude for two years, makes nature a laboratory, and brings back the record of his experiment. Walden is one of those whole, profound books in which the best of an author is distilled, In his two years by the pond, Thoreau observed sharply what he could do with nature and what nature did to him. He pondered at leisure over what it all meant and made, not a collection of random jottings, but a summarized report. Thoreau does not, as some people imagine, argue the case for the wilderness as against the town. On the contrary, he loves best the cultivated land with people on it. He merely uses the wilderness to try himself in. He goes where the nature ingredients are unmixed with other things, as an experimenter in dietetics isolates his food squad to increase human knowledge, not to please their palates. Thoreau tells what he lived for, how he lived, and thereby throws light on what humanity lives for. His attitude is neither modest nor magisterial. It is sometimes rather disdainful. His reflections on the life that his neighbors lead are often coolly contemptuous. But for the most part he is setting forth his life, and makes his conclusions clear, without urging them upon the reader's acceptance. He probes into the economies of an unthinking prosperity, like other radical philosophers. But whereas the satiric dissections of a Carlyle leave the world a ruin and the pieces not worth picking up, Thoreau builds a courageous and cheerfully remodeled life, practical for him at least, and though not to be foisted on the world like a reformer's nostrum, valuable to any neighbor who will read intelligently. So I lived, he seems to say. So I believed. So I found out and realized my sense of life. Take it or leave it. My experience taught me that to build a fine house to live in is less important than to build a good man to live in it. If that is not a practical ideal, please examine my bean-account and see if by your own dull bread-winning, cake-stealing standards of life I did not prove myself a competent husbandman. Thoreau does not turn his back on responsibilities, nor flaunt his idleness in the sweaty face of humanity. He is a conscientiously busy man, busy about his life and needs, and not unmindful of the needs of others. He holds his head up honestly the equal of the thoughtless driven toiler, and is much his superior in the satisfaction of man's need for high meditation. The philosophy of Walden is near to the selfish self-culture of the unsocial Greek. States cannot be built on it any more than they can be built on Epictetus or on Plato's Republic, but like them, Thoreau stimulates the individual to examine himself and see where he stands in the midst of the solar system to inquire what his activities amount to and what is the motive of them there is more in walden than philosophy and unsocial experiment in the business of making a living it is full of the poetry of the open world an hippathro book unroofed to the skies the birds fly and sing and the trees bud sometimes they have their technical names for thoreau is too clever to know less about a thing he sees than does some commonplace naturalist of the schools but a naturalist he avowedly is not he says in his journal that the secretary of the association for the advancement of science asked him to fill in the blanks of a circular letter by way of answering certain questions among which the most important one was what branch of science i was especially interested in I felt that it would be to make myself a laughing stock of the scientific community to describe to them that branch of science which especially interests me, inasmuch as they do not believe in a science which deals with the higher law. How absurd that though I probably stand as near to nature as any of them, and am by constitution as good an observer as most, yet a true account of my relation to nature should excite their ridicule only." Again he writes in the journal. Man cannot afford to be a naturalist, to look at nature directly, but with only the side of his eye. He must look through and beyond her. To look at her is as fatal as to look at the head of Medusa. It turns the man of science to stone. Thoreau is, as he prayed to be, a hunter of the beautiful. He is in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field are at peace with him. He is a better naturalist than most men of literary imagination, and he has more imagination than most naturalists. There are two kinds of mystics. One shrouds himself in his cloudy dreams, mistaking his murky vision for fact. The other, open-eyed and cheerful amid the sunlit world, feels himself near the heart of living things. The one is a theologian, the other is a poet. For all his interest in the hazier transcendentalists, and his admiration for the stupendous absurdities of Swedenborg, Thoreau is less near to the religious mystic than to the nature-poet of all times, and especially to Wordsworth. Thoreau's spirit is that of a poet, though his verses are not good, for he was wanting in the decisive gift of lyrical expression, as Emerson says of Plato, and might have said of himself. Like his contemporaries, Thoreau misreads nature as a collection of moral lessons, but he is not blind to her naked loveliness, and he finds her lessons not austere but consoling. Not by constraint or severity shall you have access to true wisdom, but by abandonment and childlike mirthfulness, if you would know aught, be gay before it. Mystic and transcendentalist, he is not a foggy-minded dreamer with his head lost in vacant unrealities. He lived not ascetically, but heartily, and could have said on his deathbed like Hazlitt that he had had a happy life. He did not shrink from facts like some other poets who have fled stricken to the shadowy woods. He looked upon things courageously, but he had his private criteria of what was worth looking at. His quarrel with politicians is characteristic. He's contemptuous of them, not because they are engaged in sordid matters, not because they are practical—the sentimentalist charge against them but because they are not earnestly busy at the tasks they pretend to engage in. They are poor politicians. They who have been bred in the school of politics fail now and always to face the facts, he says. In his wonderful essay, Life Without Principle, he says, I have often been surprised when one has with confidence proposed to me, a grown man, to embark in some enterprise of his, as if I had absolutely nothing to do, my life having been a complete failure hitherto. No, no, I'm not without employment at this stage of the voyage. To tell the truth, I saw an advertisement for able-bodied seamen when I was a boy, sauntering in my native port, and as soon as I came of age, I embarked. So he sailed, a clear-eyed steersman, content and confident as in the canoe which he paddled on Concord River to that morrow. The concluding words of Walden, Which mere lapse of time can never make to dawn the light which puts out our eyes is darkness to us. Only that day dawns to which we are awake. There's more day to dawn. The sun is but a morning star. Biographical Note Henry David Thoreau was born in Concord, Massachusetts, July 12, 1817, and died there May 6, 1862. He graduated at Harvard in 1837, In those days there was a fee of $5 for the diploma, and Thoreau, who had an unusually good sense of values, refused to pay the price of the parchment. He spent the rest of his life in and about Concord, whence he made excursions to Cape Cod, Maine, New Hampshire, Canada. He supported himself by teaching school, making lead pencils, surveying, and farming. He gave a few lectures and published two books. Emerson expresses his life in compact negations. He was bred to no profession, he never married, he lived alone, he never went to a church, he never voted, he refused to pay a tax to the state, he ate no flesh, he drank no wine, he never knew the use of tobacco, and, though a naturalist, he used neither gun nor rod. It should be added that he did not always live alone, for he lived with Emerson a little while, paying his board by his labor. Emerson edited four of his posthumous volumes. His works are A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, eighteen forty nine, Walden, eighteen fifty four, Excursions, eighteen sixty three, The Maine Woods, eighteen sixty four, Cape Cod, eighteen sixty five, Letters, eighteen sixty five, A Yankee in Canada, eighteen sixty six, Early Spring in Massachusetts, eighteen eighty one, Summer, eighteen eighty four, Winter. 1887. Autumn, 1892. Miscellanies, 1893. Journals, edited by Bradford Tory 1906. The life of Thoreau is written in his journals and letters with the admirable introductions by his friends, Emerson and Mr. F. B. Sanborn. The life by his other friend, W. E. Channing, called Thoreau Poet Naturalist, is important but fatuous. A good English biography is that by H. A. Page, Dr. Alexander Japp, Thoreau, his life and aim. Stevenson's essay in Familiar Studies of Men and Books is good Stevenson, but poor Thoreau, and the paragraphs about the essay and the preface are just as good Stevenson, but still worse Thoreau. Lowell's essay is the work of an extraordinarily brilliant snob, See also The Life by H.S. Salt and The Life by F.B. Sanborn in American Men of Letters. End of Section 12. Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota.